So I'll start with this. Uh, as a young boy in middle school or, or even in high school, my biggest worries at the age, at that age, were so small <laughs> compared to the worries and the responsibilities that I have now as an adult. Um, at that time, during middle school and in high school, my biggest worries were probably the pressure of fitting in with my peers in school. And that was it. That was my, that was my worries. Uh, my biggest responsibilities were probably just making sure I got to school and did what I was told. From hindsight, that's a pretty easy life. My parents would provide, provide me with food and shelter. So again, these, these things weren't even in the radar of my worries. Uh, my mom would be the one that would provide. I would have food on the table. I didn't have to worry about bills, none of that. I was just a kid, so you know what, what was there to seriously worry about? But I'll never forget the time when I began to live on my own. My life was never the same from then on. Uh, at first, living on my own felt amazing. I felt free. No one was there to supervise me. Uh, I could stay up late. I can do pretty much what I wanted, when I wanted. So it took a while before reality hit me. Um, I think reality finally hit me as I was eating a bowl of cereal, for dinner, of course. Uh, and I realized how much I missed my mother's cooking. Uh, somehow I took that for granted. And as I would sip the last of the milk in the cereal bowl, I remember walking over to the sink and uh, placing my bowl on top of a pile of bowls. Uh, it was more like a mountain of bowls that I had neglected to wash uh, that were left there from previous cereal dinners. It was a disgusting view. At that moment, I could almost hear my mother's voice saying profound words of wisdom to me, saying, Eso no se limpia solo. Sounds deep, but what it translates is, they aren't going to clean themselves. <laughs> so that's when it hit me. I was hit with a de depressing reality that I can no longer eat or drink or place my dishes in the sink without care. That was, that was done, or done with. I can never do that again. Uh, I realized that any mess that I made, or any dish that I used, it was on me to clean it and put things back where they belong since I lived alone. There was no one to take care of me in that sense. I could feel my so-called freedom going out the window and the weight of responsibility just increasing. How ignorant was I? This reality hit me in other ways as well. I remember nights of staying up late on a weekday, just hanging out with friends. Terms, you remember all that, right? <laughs> and uh, having to get up for work the next day. After all, if I don't work, who's going to pay the bills, right? Yet, some nights I would go to bed at 2 or 3 in the morning. Uh, so I would only get like 3 to 4 hours of sleep. This would result to poor performance at work because I wasn't well, I wasn't well rested. Yet I felt the need, this was like a need inside of me, I felt this need uh, that if I didn't stay up late, I felt like I was wasting these opportunities of freedom. It was almost like a need. I had to stay up late, regardless of how tired I was. I couldn't help but think to myself, why wouldn't I take advantage of living on my own, staying up late, and doing what I wanted if I'm finally free to do so? But this kind of thinking was foolish. <clears throat> After a while, I started to see the results of this kind of living. My house was a mess. The inside of my, my, my refrigerator looked like a like a science experiment <laughs> uh, with stuff growing in my food. My health was decreasing. 
and I wasn't performing well at work. And as my to-do list continued to grow because of my neglect, I would push it aside and I dreaded the thought of facing my responsibilities. After all, I wanted to be free. Yet I never thought in a million years that the pursuit of what I thought was true freedom would be the very thing that would enslave me. As a young man, I wanted freedom from adult supervision. I wanted freedom to do as I pleased. But when that freedom came, all I wanted at that point was freedom from myself. Freedom from my own desires that only led me to chaos and disorder. Many people under the banner of freedom pursue the very thing that would contribute to their own destruction. Many parents may struggle with a child who desires freedom from rules and regulations. Even at the age of adulthood, sons and daughters flee from the Christian teachings and biblical principles that, were, that they were raised with, seeking to be free from what they consider to be a hindrance to their preferred way of life. The Bible, to many, is seen as a form of oppression. And like the prodigal son, they would prefer to eat pig slop than to face the father and eat of his bread. What does man, why does mankind have this problem? Is it not in man to do good if only he or she deeply seeks inside himself? Well, if the need for laws and police and courts and judges doesn't convince you that man by nature isn't good, I don't know what else would. The, ra the reality is that if man is left alone to his own pursuit of goodness, he would blindly guide himself into his own destruction. Ultimately, this is an issue of the will of man or the, the heart of man. For the same reason we need to set our alarm on at night to wake us up for work, or the reason we place limits on what we eat for health purposes, or the government places rules and policies for the safety of a city, it's the same reason why we too must seek discipline for ourselves. Chaos is the enemy of growth. Disorganization, sloppiness, and inattentiveness generally introduces this kind of instability that weakens rather than strengthens. Where there is no order, there will likely be little in the environment that sustains and nourishes. Life needs to be ordered. Order must reign if growth is to occur. It's a fact of life. <clears throat> but most importantly, this is, very, this is very important and is very necessary in spiritual matters. Without the proper establish, establishments of routines, boundaries, certain patterns, growing spiritually most likely will not occur. Another, uh, another word for the order needed to grow spiritually is this word of discipline. And, and discipline is the topic that I'll be addressing today. And I realize that many of us get all kinds of thoughts when we think of the word discipline. Maybe this word comes across as something negative to a lot of us. We may think of punishment when we think of discipline. But I hope to change that today. Today I want to argue that a healthy church member is one who seeks discipline. And I'm going to do this by explaining it in three points. So uh, if you haven't gotten a paper or uh, a worksheet, we have some here on the side. And you'll see the list of the three points. Point number one is seeking formative discipline. Seeking formative discipline. And I'm going to define that and I'm going to explain what formative discipline is. 
Um, and we'll look at some scriptures on, on what, what it looks like to seek formative discipline. Point number two is seeking corrective discipline. Seeking corrective discipline. And we'll look into that as well. And the last point is our responsibility, ours meaning us as the church or the congregation, our responsibility for the discipline of other members. Okay? So I'll go ahead and uh, start with point number one, seeking formative discipline. So before I begin to define what formative discipline means, I want us to look at a verse in scripture that is going to guide our understanding of church discipline. Okay, And it shows us that there are two essential sides to church discipline that are both needed in the life of a healthy church. So let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Can I get someone to read that? Amen. So I want you to look closely in this, in this verse. This passage is packed with important key points that are essential to the life of a church. Um, uh, says, I, I would begin first with the beginning of the passage. Let's look at the beginning where it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, and so on and so forth. So again, this places the scripture in a high place for the church. You see how it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, and then it lists what it's profitable for. So Paul here, when he wrote this, uh, he's taking the time to point out how the scripture is breathed out by God. So he begins his point by commending the scripture on the account of its authority. Here he's declaring that the scriptures are divinely inspired. This means that we as Christ's church should receive the word of God with reverence. Uh, this is a principle with, which distinguishes the Christian faith with all other religions, knowing that God has really spoken to us. When we open the word of God, we see all scriptures breathed out by God. We actually are being spoken to by God through his word. All that the prophets and apostles had written was not from their own suggestion, but uh, that they were being tools of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit. They only declared what was given to them from God to declare. And that's what we have here in our Bibles. For us, this means that the scriptures are trustworthy. right? We can trust in them. They're uh, inerrant. They are authoritative because, the scriptures, because here we see that it is God-breathed. Uh, it can be taken as God's own words. And we are blessed to have the word of God with us today. That's, a, that's an amazing gift. Now, again, let's look back at the, at, the, at the verse. Paul continues by stating that this authoritative, uh, God-breathed wor God word of God is profitable. You see the word profitable. This word suggests a few things regarding the use of the scriptures. Paul here is indirectly suggesting that while many people seek other means of spiritual growth and edification, God has specifically chosen his word as the primary source. When Paul is saying profitable, he suggests that it is sinfulness when the true usefulness of the word is not sought. In other words, those who disregard the scriptures disregard edification from God. With that in mind, it's, it's unlawful to treat the scriptures in, in an unprofitable manner. That's, that's important that we honor the scriptures in that way. Here's a quote from John Calvin. He says, for the, uh, for the Lord, when he gave us the scriptures, did not intend either to gratify our curiosity, 
or to encourage ostentation or to give occasion for chatting and, and talking, but to do us good. And therefore, the right use of Scripture must always tend to what is profitable, end quote. So again, going back to 2 Timothy 3 in that verse, we see that Paul goes on to describe some unique ways that the Scriptures are profitable. So it says, all Scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for, and then here's a list of what um, the Scriptures are profitable for. Now, um, uh, I want you to notice all four points that are shown in that verse. Um, it says profitable for teaching, right? For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if you look closely at, at all those words there, you'll notice that, um, you notice that it, it's describing different ways that it's profitable for us. Um, and you can actually divide it in two kind of categories. You can divide it in a positive category and a negative cat category. Um, but when it comes to church discipline, instead of negative and positive, the correct words are formative and corrective. So I'm going to show you which ones are formative. Under the formative category, we place teaching and training for righteousness. You see the relation there. Teaching, right? Uh, so one form of discipline is to be sitting under teaching and to be trained under righteousness. So again, this is formative in the sense that teaching, the teaching of God's word and the training in righteousness are the ways in which a believer is constantly being formed more and more into the image of Christ. Now, for the negative category, or what we would call the corrective category, we would place the other two, which is reproof and correction. This is corrective in the sense that the truths that are found in Scripture are used to address sin, false doctrine, and helps to serve the church in keeping it pure and distinct from the world. So again, we have uh, formative, right? This is the, the two points that help us to uh, help form us into the image of Christ, which is the teaching and the training in righteousness. And then we have the corrective form of discipline, which is reproof and correction. I think that one's more the popular one. When we think of church discipline, we think of people being kicked out of church, right? But again, both categories, formative and corrective, together make up what we call church discipline. That's important. So when you hear church discipline, it's not always a negative thing. Church discipline throughout church history has been known as one of the key marks of the true church, right? Along with two other key marks. Anyone know what the other two key marks are? Okay, so uh, church discipline is one of the key marks of what makes up a true church, um, at least historically. And there's, uh, they, they go alongside with two other marks. Do you guys remember the other two marks? Would anyone know? Uh, what is it? Well, yeah, yeah, there's a word for it, like sacraments, sacraments right? The sacraments. Biblical. Yes. Thank you there. Yeah. And then what was the, there's another one. Does anyone know? Yes, the preaching of the word of God. Yes, thank you, Arnie. So, yeah, so it's uh, the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. But again, in a time where false doctrine is so widely spread, I would want to make it clear that the marks of the true church would be the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the Lord's Supper, and the right uh, practice of church discipline. 
And so the right practice of church discipline, which we'll get more into, um, cons uh, consists of these two aspects, the, the formative and the corrective. Now, what, what makes any of these marks right <clears throat> is always and will always be the authority of the word of God, right? Therefore, church discipline is done correctly when it's under the authority, not of man and his personal agenda. Like, I want to charge this person of sin, you know, because of your own personal agenda. But the agenda of the word of God, that's how we do church discipline. And this is why the Bible must be center in all that we do, especially in the context of a gathering of a church. <clears throat> so let's, let's talk about formative discipline a little bit. Uh, again, formative discipline is the, is the scriptures using teaching and training in righteousness. Um, so if, if we are to seek after formative discipline, we must actively seek to be under the teaching of the word and to be under the training of righteousness by the word. I didn't know we had a phone here. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, that's his. Okay. That's fine. So the King James Version uses the word doctrine instead of teaching. In other words, the scriptures are profitable for indoctrinating or in giving, uh, or giving a systematic method of understanding the full counsel of God, according to the Bible. So indoctrination is a way to press upon biblical truths, practices, principles, and even attitudes, customs, and methods in which one must understand and make their own if they're to carry this truth to the next generation. I love what uh, 2 Timothy, nope, that was it, nope. 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14 says, I'll read it. It says, follow the pattern of the sound words. Notice how it says the pattern of the sound words. Not only the words, but the tradition that comes out of the preached word. That you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So see that where it says pattern of sound words. Again, we see that sitting under sound teaching and doctrine are important disciplines. Not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of carrying it out or carrying out this deposit that has been entrusted to us, to others. We see that through the pattern of the apostles' sound words, which for us is the, the scripture, we're able to understand the faith and love that are in Christ. And the word of God is the means in which we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Here's an example of that. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Can someone read that? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, or face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> so I like in verse uh, 15 where it says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, 
So whenever the book of the Torah is opened, um, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And for us as believers in Christ, the veil has been removed, right? I love what it says in verse 17. Um, Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And verse 18 as well. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that that speaks to us with, uh, this speaks to those with an unveiled face, those of us who are saved. God has revealed to us the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're saved, you understand that uh, what was written from the prophets to the Old Testament are pertaining to Jesus Christ. When you open up the Bible and you look in the Old Testament, it's testifying about Jesus. Um, And this is understood by us because God has given us this revelation. We're able to see the scriptures and on how it relates to Jesus Christ. Uh, for, those who, for, for those who are still uh, blinded or still have the veil over their, their eyes, the Jews, they can't see Jesus through Scripture. Um, and for us who it's been, it's been shown, our veils have been removed. And as we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Word of God is preached or taught, we ourselves are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. So when Jesus is preached, when we look through scriptures and Jesus is, is shown to us through, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, um, this is being used for our transformation as we behold his glory through, through what's been revealed in scripture. Um, and we too are being transformed in, in the same way. So this is profound. Um, and this is, what it makes, this is what makes seeking the, the teaching of the word of God vital. Um, this is what makes it important as a discipline. We must also know that the word of God is God's tool in training us in righteousness. Uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, another verse, I'll read it. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this is the important part here, verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in this verse, we see the sufficiency of Scripture in regards to our training in righteousness. The Scriptures are the means in which God does His work in us that we may be complete and equipped in every good work. So how else are we to seek formative discipline? Well, we must learn to willfully receive the Word of God, and we do this with meekness. Here's another verse, James one twenty one that talks about uh, how we are to approach the scripture. Can someone read James one twenty one? Therefore put away all filthiness and word, which is able to save your souls. Thank you. So James tells us that Christians should receive the word of God with meekness. That is, in the preaching of God's word and in Bible study, Christians should remain lowly and gentle before the scriptures, acknowledging it as the source of salvation and instruction in godly living. As we come to the scriptures, we are to do so as people knowing our own sinful nature. When we, when we read the scriptures, we have to recognize who we are before God's word. And that's very important. We can't come, we can't come with it 
with an arrogant spirit, with a uh, boastful spirit. We have to be humble. Uh, we, we must recognize our own sinful nature, our spiritual poverty before God, and our need for the molding influence of God, which comes normally by His Word. Um, how, how can you be molded by the Word, or, or even when the Word is being preached, how are you going to be molded if you, you have your walls up, you feel that you know everything, you're, you're, coming, you're coming before it arrogant and, and boastful, but when you come with it, uh, with a meek and humble spirit, you're able to be molded by the Word of God. Uh, in Thabiti's book uh, on healthy membership, he poses some pretty good questions, and I'm, I'm going to read them. Um, they're uh, questions that I think are helpful to ask yourself in order to know whether you are meek before the Word of God. Here's, here's a couple of questions. Uh, question number one, this is what we should ask ourselves. Are we, as we read the Bible, are we reading for information only? Or with faith that God actually speaks through his word. That's important. Are, are we just retaining theology? Or are we receiving it like this is the Lord speaking to me? Question number two. When we hear the word preached, are we generally looking to have a need? Uh, I'm sorry. To have a need met? For example, to be entertained or to gather, to gather some practical advice? Or are we primarily desiring to understand the original meaning of the text and apply it in our lives? Another question. Is our first reaction to the scripture, how does this make me feel? Is that your first reaction? Or do I accept this as true? Or do we allow our feelings to determine what is true? Or do we allow scriptures to determine our feelings? Another question, is our listening posture during sermons or scripture readings defensive or combative? As though we demand someone to prove this to me, prove this to us. Is that our approach when we're hearing sermons? Do we tend to judge other philosophies and view, viewpoints? Uh, actually, do we, do we use philosophies and viewpoints uh, when we're hearing scripture being preached to us? Or do we try to either... Reconcile or judge the scriptures by other philosophies and views. In other words, um, are you bringing your philosophy as the primary principle um, of judging whether this is something that you will receive or not? Or are you allowing the scriptures to define our worldview? And that's, that's very important. To summarize formative discipline, this discipline means to seek to be under the teaching of the word of God and the training of righteous living. This is best done through the context of the local church. We receive formative discipline through the Sunday sermon, through Bible study, through discipleship, through our personal devotion time, through the public reading of scripture, and through gospel-centered fellowship as one seeks to grow in the knowledge of Christ. This, this is a discipline commanded in scripture for all believers. And like John Calvin says regarding the scripture, it is corrupted by sinful abuse if this usefulness is not sought. Again, it is our duty as the church to seek constantly the teaching of God's word through this discipline. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Now the second point, um, seeking corrective discipline. Now this is where it gets interesting. So uh, number, point number two, corrective discipline. Um, this is more self explanatory. We can look at the word corrective 
and know immediately that this kind of discipline deals, with, with, deals more with a co- confrontational, rebuking, or chastising forms of discipline. And again, this is where it gets messy. But this is where you will see more clearly believers who are spiritually committed to the work of God in their own sanctification. Because a person who is committed to corrective discipline is one who is willing to humbly accept correction from the word of God, as well as correction from others who may point out sins and faults in your own life. Now that's, that's tough sometimes. You have to be humble to receive correction. So again, how do we define corrective discipline? We look again at the, that text in 2 Timothy 3.16, and Paul lists the other two ways in which scripture is profitable for us. These ways are for reproof and correction. This is corrective in the sense that the truths that are found in Scripture are used to address sin, false doctrine, and helps to to serve the church in keeping it pure and distinct from the world. So in many ways, we uh, we as a church receive corrective discipline through the preached word. And we we see in Hebrews 4.12, here's the next verse, the power of God's word on the soul of a man. Uh, Can someone read Hebrews 4.12? Amen. Thank you. So think about the preacher who has the word and he's preaching the word. The job of the preacher is to explain the text, right? And to tell us how to apply it. And in this process, as we hear the word preached, many of our sins and misguided ideas are proven to us. So again, just by sitting under the preached word, what the word of God is doing is, it is convicting us, it's showing and revealing our sin and our misguided ideas, and it's helping us to understand better the will of God. And so this is a form of corrective discipline since the word is used for reproof and correction. Uh, we must trust that God would speak to us in, in his preached word, and we must be open to possible correction, even when we think we're doing fine in our walk with God. Again, this takes humility. Many times we as Christians have the tendency to think that like when we're sitting and listening to the sermon, sometimes we'll sit there and we'll think this, this better applies to someone else. Uh, or some, maybe you have a friend or someone you think that are struggling with that specific area. Um, and and you, you, just, you just assume that this preaching, it's for someone else and not for yourself. Instead of focusing your listening, listening and seeing how it applies to you. For example, we may hear a sermon that addresses pride or arrogance, and we may think to ourselves, oh, this sermon, this sermon must be convicting to so-and-so. Yet it is our own pride and our own arrogance that doesn't allow us to realize that this sermon applies to us. So if we are to submit to biblical corrective discipline, we must keep our ears open and our pride down, constantly seeking to know when God is communicating to us about our errors and our sins. This may be received through sermon or Bible study or even through a person who confronts you with the truth of Scripture. They may come to you and say, hey, listen, uh, I, think, I think this is something that you might be struggling. What do you think about this? Um, you know, and this happens in so many different ways, especially the way that we're connected to other people. Sometimes people might show your sin in a different way. They may do it through a joke. Um, they may do it using humor. 
But regardless, the question is not, man, that person was mean, but the question is, how are, how are your ears? Are you attentive to it? Are you able to apply it in your heart? Are you, are you able to apply it to your life and say, you know, maybe this person is right. Uh, maybe this person is t- showing me something that I might be doing wrong. Um, so th- this brings me to the more uh, controversial part of the corrective discipline, which we see in Matthew 18. Uh, someone, can someone read Matthew 18, 15 through 17? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Yeah, so we see this, is, this form of discipline is much more confrontational. But what is the goal for it? What is the goal for this type of church discipline? Is the goal to point out the sins of others and that's it? Do we not all have sins that we're dealing with? Well, first, we must acknowledge that Jesus is saying this. Uh, he's saying, if your brother sins against you, But if the sin is not confessed and repented of, then it becomes a sin against two or three witnesses. So now it's becoming a bigger deal. And then finally, the step three is that it becomes a sin against the whole church when it's brought before the church. This is, of course, if the person is not repenting. Jesus continues this passage by saying that there are two or three, where two or three are gathered, I am there. Which would signify that what is a sin against the church at this point is therefore a sin against God. But again, what is the goal for this kind of church discipline? Is it merely an opportunity to point others' sins out? The answer is no. We can see the goal for this kind of approach. Um, We see the answer in the end of verse 15. Look at uh, verse 15. Towards the end it says, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the, the goal, of course, is to gain your brother. But again, when is it time to do this kind of church discipline? Well, the question you ought to ask yourself is, what kind of sin, uh, of course, if if, if it's confessed, you gain your brother, but if you think about the opposite, what kind of sin would do the opposite? What kind of sin would cause you to lose a brother? This can only mean that, that this form of discipline is towards a brother who is overtaken or blinded by unrepented sin, or habitual sin. Um, it, it is one thing to witness a brother fall, right? Or stumble over sins that even they themselves might believe is wrong and are striving to, to kill, to mortify. Um, again, if you watch me long enough, you probably see sin in me in many different areas. And I think the same might be for you. But it is quite another thing to see brothers or sisters who willfully commit sins with no feeling of remorse. This is different. This is, what it, this, is, this is the appropriate time to address them with the scriptures and say, hey, look, you know, uh, I, think, I think you need to stop this. If they feel, no, I'm, I'm cool with this, then, of course, you bring another brother or, or two or three witnesses. You address it with them again. Um, and this is a serious case at, at that point. Um, 
So again, as church members, it is our job to obey Matthew 18 by lovingly help, helping the person see their sin and helping to restore them to good standing with the body of Christ. Again, the goal is always that we may gain the brother. It's, it's never so that we can um, attack our brother, but the, the goal is always to gain the brother back into the body of Christ. Excuse me. And with that said, we must, we must learn to recognize chastisement or correct, correction as evidence of God's love towards us. And, and if you're troubled by the, uh, this perception that church discipline is unloving, unkind, consider the fact that the Bible tells that God himself is a loving father who disciplines his children. Hebrews 12, 5 to 6, I'll read it. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So receiving discipline at the hand of God is evidence of his love for us, whether through formative discipline, right, is the teaching of the word to us, or corrective discipline. This is all an act of love from God. We must be open to God's chastisement in our lives if we are to grow in Christ. Not only do healthy church members accept the Lord's discipline, but they humbly accept correction from others. So ask yourselves, how do you how do, you do when, when you're being corrected by other, other people? How do you react? Think about that. Uh, we, we must recognize that often the Lord's correction comes through other members of the church who are also under the authority of the word of God. These are saints who care enough not to only encourage in good times, but to confront and correct when necessary. We must agree with what the Bible says in Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, when it says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Isn't it better? Some of you are like, no way, man. Uh, <laughs> Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then Proverbs uh, 1.7b, the ending of it, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if we are to be healthy members of Christ's body, we must be open for corrective discipline. Now this brings me to the last point. Our responsibility for, dis for the discipline of other members. This one's going to uh, be more of an emphasis on just the regular lay people, the regular com uh, congregation. Not only the leaders, but your participation in the, the correction and the discipline of other members. Um, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, I have someone read that. Um, just a quick intro to it, though. Something scandalous was, was going on with the church at Corinth. There was, a report, there was a report that a man was having an affair with his father's wife. But judging by the tone of Paul in this letter, he seemed to be more upset at the church's passivity than the actual sin itself. Isn't that interesting? But, but let's go ahead and read it. Someone read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to, um, 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and, in, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immorale of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Mm. Thank you, Lloyd. <clears throat> Interesting passage here. So notice in verses 9 through 13 when it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would, have, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So it's important to know that church discipline is meant for the church, right? Not outsiders. Don't start uh, putting people in discipline who are not <laughs> in church. God will be doing the judging of those of the world. We are called to have formative and corrective discipline towards each other within the church. The reason for this is that God intends to keep his church distinct from the world. There has to be a separating mark. By removing the false converts from the pure bride of Christ. But notice verse 2 when Paul says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? <clears throat> Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Why is he saying that? Paul is upset at the church for not addressing the issue. And not being proactive in the discipline of the people in the church. In other words, it is the congregation's responsibility to care for the church members and be active in both formative and corrective discipline. So again, part of corrective discipline is the purging of an unrepentant member. Again, we see in verse 4 it says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to del deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? This is called excommunication. And as harsh as it may seem, this is, in fact, a love act towards the person being excommunicated. Isn't that interesting? This is actually an act of love towards the person. Once the person has gone through the two or the three witnesses and has gone before the church and yet still chooses not to repent, he is to be considered an unbeliever among the church. This is what it means to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Since the church gives him over to his own ways, he will eventually suffer trials from the devil. That would eventually, this would eventually reveal his need for repentance, restoration, and reconciliation with God and his church. This is, of course, if he's truly elect, if he's truly one of God's people. If he's truly a Christian, he would eventually repent and reconcile with God's people. This is helpful. This is a loving act. But again, on the reverse side, if he's not elect, he has been dead in his sins since the beginning. He has never been in Christ. And the church is at least purified and cleansed from this false convert. So this is one of the greatest acts of love that the church can do towards an unrepentant sinner. The goal is always to come to the truth, right? To come to the light. And the end of verse 5 shows us the purpose of such discipline when it says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, this should, this should be all of our motivation. Any form of discipline, whether if it's sitting under the teaching of God's word or confronting a brother and saying, you know, I think you might be off on this. All these things should be motivated um, with, with that same motivation that we see in that scripture so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That we would love our church members and desire their salvation and their restoration and the fellowship of the saints in Christ Jesus through this love act. So again, if love is not there, it counts for nothing. So I conclude with this. Uh, through my own personal failures and mistakes while living alone, like I mentioned in the uh, introduction, during that time, I was able to see my own need for discipline. Yet as a Christian, spiritual discipline plays an even more important role since it deals with matters of eternity. We are all in need of spiritual discipline. If we are left to ourselves without submitting to God, or to submitting to godly discipline, rather, we shouldn't be surprised when we find out that we were never truly saved in the first place. A Christian is one who seeks after this kind of discipline. Those, who, those of us who have been born again are drawn by the Spirit to a lifestyle that seeks both uh, the discipline from the, in the formative sense and in the corrective sense. But, he, but a Christian is also one who contributes this kind of discipline within the life of the local church. We are called to own this responsibility of correcting and instructing brothers and sisters in need of it. This is for the sake of being conformed more and more into Christ's likeness. Without it, the house of God will be inadequately ordered. His children will be poorly taught. And the witness of the church would be stained by unrepentant and uncorrected sin. Let us make this charge our own, being that a healthy church member is one who seeks discipline and contributes to the discipline of the church for the sake of building it up in love. Amen? Amen. 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 Uh, any questions or comments, by the way? Still got time. 
how do we handle nominal believers? Um, how do we, I mean, you can, that's to me, the, that's the issue in the American church. Yeah. In general, is the nominal believers, and how do you talk to them? How should you, like, how do you gauge that? Yeah, um, I would always start with my church first. Um, uh, but, of course, in conversation, like if there's any outsiders who are Christians or call themselves Christians, um, the thing is, if they're not being, if they're not sitting under the assigned uh, way of growth, for example, if they're not sitting under the true means of grace that was appointed by Scripture, for example, you may have a friend that is a Christian, but they're not in a healthy church, um, then I would start with that. Because I think it's important that these roles be trusted on, on those with those particular gifts. Like, um, my, my thing is, even when I evangelize, always trying to plug them into the church because here in our church, we'll have the elder who's studied up in the word. He would be faithful in preaching the word. Um, they can sit under these means of grace, and which is really what scripture shows as the appointed way for these people to grow and um, come to real maturity. So, you know, pointing them to a healthy church would be, probably the, the, the best thing. And showing them their need for it through the Bible, you know, so. Yeah. Thanks, You're welcome. Yeah, any other questions or comments? We're good. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love that is displayed through discipline, Lord. Uh, we, we, we need to constantly be reminded that when we are corrected or uh, in need of discipline, Lord, that these are acts of love from you. Um, if we're truly saved, if we are children of God, uh, then these things should always be counted as a blessing and a joy, Lord. And we just pray that you would help our hearts to uh, be, be conformed to that truth. Lord, help us to Seek after true discipline for the sake of growing in Christ and becoming more and more into Christ's likeness. Um, give us ears to receive corrective, corrective advice and corrective um, uh, ways that uh, people try to show our sins um, and, and steer us back into um, faithfulness to your word and help us to receive it with humble hearts. Um, and we just ask that you would Give us that motivation, give us that heart, and uh, uh, that we would put this to practice, um, but ultimately depend on your spirit to do that work in us, Lord. So we pray that you would um, grant this to us as a church, um, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys.